The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and here with me are my co-hosts Jennifer Saber and Anna Shemansky. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. So we're jumping back on the campaign trail for the U.S. presidential election later in the show, digesting the results in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, as well as the budget proposals from current White House incumbent Donald John Trump. First up, though, comes SoftBank Group, the $108 billion tech-to-telecom conglomerate run by Masayoshi Son, has been on the receiving end of both good and bad news in recent days. And Antony and Jen are here to decipher it all for us. Antony, let's start with the bad news. SoftBank now faces pressure from an activist investor. Who is it and what's behind the move? Well, it's it's everyone's, I'm not sure favorite activist investor is the right word, but one that when you see it, you think, ah, we actually might need to do something. Elliott Management, uh, which has gone after a number of uh, high profile targets in recent years, including, of course, let's not forget the Argentine government. Um, often with a great deal of success. Uh, and uh, they've built, a, I think it's a roughly $3 billion stake in the company, came out late last week. Uh, and I should just say that this, we are channeling here on, on the activist discussion, we're channeling our colleague in London, Liam Proud, who is currently off to another one of his targets, uh, his own targets. Um, uh, that's Credit Suisse, who's changing its CEO, so he couldn't join us. Uh, but he has, in, in both this year and last year's predictions that we do at the beginning of each year, two years ago he said, SoftBank faces some problems with his investments. This year, he said, and now it's right for an activist investor. So he's got a twofer on this one. So I'm channeling all of his energy, hopefully properly, uh, on this. Well, look, uh, basically, SoftBank is 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 ripe for this. And the, the basic argument is um, it's heavily undervalued in large part because of all the problems it had last year, not just last year, but especially last year, from the likes of WeWork and Uber and some of its other smaller investments, really performing very poorly or not well. And so what exactly does Elliot want it to do? Well, one thing they want to do is shake up the management process. They also want to um, overhaul the board. It's it's not as independent as it should be, and it's also uh, lacking in diversity, which is uh, hardly unusual for a lot of boards these days, obviously. Um, and they also want to uh, well receive some money. They want to get some sh- some money from share buybacks, which would involve doing you know, various things. Um, and the most likely thing is probably selling assets. But that's that's what they're looking for. Yeah. And so, is SoftBank a particularly easy target? Well, on performance, yes. Uh, when Liam ran the numbers uh, a couple of months ago, he decided that uh, he worked out that um, SoftBank was probably trading at, at less than half the value of his assets, including all these investment stakes it's, it's got, obviously. Um, and now it's gone up a bit since then, uh, but you know it still seems to be heavily undervalued, probably to the tune of, of just probably just under 50% now, I think, is what, what he worked out. So on that basis, yes. And Elliot's looked at that and said, this looks great. Problem is that um, the chief executive, Masayoshi Son, owns 22% of the company. And to get most, if not all of these, uh, any changes proposed through, um, Elliot would need to convince 67% of shareholders. So that makes it you know, a very, very tight race. So how do we think this will be resolved? Well, I mean, it could take a while, but actually Liam again has written this week looking at uh, SoftBank's earnings, where yet again I think uh, Masayoshi Sun was saying that we, we think the company's undervalued as well, which he said in the past. So there's clearly a meeting of the minds on, on where the company stands, in the stock market at least. And look, um, one idea is simply that you know, if, you can, if you can increase the buybacks, 
um, the chances are you could uh, increase the value of the company. It actually happened last year for a while after um, after the company announced, I think it was a $5.5 billion buyback last year, the company increased, uh, stock value went up by 15 percentage points. Now, if you run the numbers as Liam has done and say, let's say $20 billion is paid back uh, or buy, bought back uh, uh, from the shareholders, then arguably that gets you almost to equilibrium. So if it boosts the share price based on last year's movement by the same amount or the same quantum, then you're going to get up towards uh, the value of the company. I mean, it's, a, it's a big if. It's not necessarily going to work that way. And of course, what that would require is, because you know, SoftBank is somewhat heavily indebted, couldn't probably take on much more, is to sell these assets that, that, that Elliot's talking about. And what are some of these assets? Well, I mean, the most obvious one is Alibaba, um, although there are some tax issues, which Yahoo had to work through its own stake that it sold uh, or got rid of uh, a year or three ago. Um, there's also a UK chip maker Arm, uh, and uh, SoftBank also has a, a telecom group that it listed recently and still has a stake in. Um, and in the US, you've got Sprint, one of the big telecoms firms. Okay, well, that's a good segue for us to shift to Sprint. So, Jen, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on with Sprint um, in the past week? Yeah, so this was um, a huge overhang for SoftBank. So just to kind of um, explain what's going on, um, T-Mobile U.S., which is owned mostly by Deutsche Telekom, agreed to uh, merge with Sprint back in April 2018. This is a long time in the making. The DOJ and the FCC both approved the deal. However, a group of states decided to try and block it because basically their reasoning was if these two telecom firms join up, it will reduce competition and raise prices for consumers. So th- these are the third and fourth largest Yes. So T-Mobile is number three and Sprint is number four. All right. Um, and then, of course, you have AT&T and Verizon in the first two slots. So what happened uh, earlier this week is that a judge decided to, uh, in favor of uh, T-Mobile and Sprint, which was, you know, it was a big deal, a big win for them. Um, and it sort of eliminates this overhang that SoftBank has because uh, Sprint is just a, a complete weakling in this marketplace. And it's heavily indebted. It's like maybe $34 billion in net debt. Right. Um, and, and obviously the, the judge, that the whole, the, the, the ability of Sprint to continue as a, as a going concern was one of the judge's reasons. They were going up on the stand and they were saying that this, that the company was so weak that if, you know, this deal didn't go through, it would probably be curtains for Sprint at some right. point down, down the road. And so I think the judge uh, basically said, okay, I buy that argument. The problem is... Um, T-Mobile and Sprint have to come back to the table and renegotiate the deal terms. So they overshot their um, uh, merger closing date. So that effectively puts everything in so play. So that means they can just go back to the table and say, okay, let's redo the deal? Well, yeah. I mean, they can redo the terms of the deal, right. which is effectively happening right now. So um, <laughs> Sprint was in a weak position when this happened two years ago almost. Is there, they're in an even weaker position now. So I'm sure T-Mobile US is deciding like, hey, we want to, you know, try and get more favorable terms right. uh, since, you know, we think Sprint is in not such great shape. So it's a bit, a bit of a, a, a poor place for SoftBank to be in right now. I mean, okay, look, let's put it a different way. I mean, it's kind of a poor place because it's either, either if, this, if this deal wasn't approved, we could be left with nothing. Okay, it's a $35 billion company at the moment. So I'm sure they were slightly over-egging the argument on the stand that the company would fail. But nonetheless, you can't come out, if the judge had, had said no, investors would have been very, 
very, very quick to punish the stock price. So at the very least, SoftBank still retains, what's it got, 84% of the company? Yeah, they are. So they might, from what you're saying, um, T-Mobile US has a position, has an ability to go out and, and maybe get a better deal, which makes SoftBank a bit worse off, but at least it's still got a company it can sell. Yeah, I mean, it, they definitely want the, want this merger to happen. I mean, they don't want to walk away from it. And so, but just to kind of put, um, you know, a point, you know, fine point on it. Um, so I was kind of running the numbers. And basically when the deal was announced, it valued uh, Sprint in, in terms of its value in the combined company at about um, $40 billion, a little, a little over $40 billion. Um, if you use the exact same fundamentals that they used, in April 2018, basically we arrived at a number of 34, 35 billion dollars. So you're looking at about a six billion dollar difference in price if T-Mobile, you know, kind of decides to use that as the metric. Right. And in the market right now, seems to be thinking that because yeah. that's what what Sprint is yeah. trading at. Oh, well, that that makes things a little bit easier, I suppose, for for SoftBank to to, to swallow. But again, like you were saying, if, if they if this went wrong, they might have had nothing. Yeah, or exactly. very little. And when does the deal have to be complete? Well, I, that I don't know, right? Because they've already overshot their their closing date. I mean, it's, it's it's just like one thing after the other. And there are a couple of other little issues that are hanging out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, the states could decide to appeal um, and, you know, go back to court. But um, more than that, the California Public Utilities Commission has to approve this deal as well. Um, and that's that's a bigger issue for them. And it probably will happen. Um, but, you know, still, it's it's not completely, not, you know, the I's aren't dotted and the T's aren't crossed yet. Is there a chance that T-Mobile US could try and pull out? Or is that just a off the wall idea. Um, I mean, my guess is if they were going to do that, they probably yeah. would have done that before because why would you go through, you know, a couple of, yeah. you know, legal... <laughs> Thanks for saying yes, we don't yeah. want you anymore anyway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, go through the whole process, you know, and yeah. not just one, but two, the federal process, yeah. and then again through this lawsuit. So, and, and what benefit do they get from... T-Mobile? Yeah. So, I mean, basically what, what they get is they get subscribers, they get um, Spectrum, they get uh, $43 billion in cost savings, which is this huge number that they mm. um, have been sort of touting. Um, so, you know, T-Mobile has been really uh, exceptional and, and well run under uh, the chief executive, John Ledger. Um, he basically took, um, you know, a $6 billion break fee in um, money and spectrum. If you recall, AT&T tried to acquire T-Mobile and the Justice Department uh, said, no way, we're not going to allow this to happen. So what he did was he took that money and he made T-Mobile, which was the number four carrier, into the number three carrier and just and, you know kind of basically put a ton of pressure on the entire marketplace in terms of pricing. And um, he turned it around. So with another um, you know asset like this, he could probably, you know, the theory is T-Mobile mm. will continue to keep trucking along. And uh, maybe, assuming they keep hold of it uh, for now, uh, increase SoftBank's stake if it all goes according to plan. Well, yeah. Or, sorry, (laughs) increase the value of SoftBank's stake. Sure. (laughs) Okay, guys, I think that we can wrap it up there. I'm sure this will be a topic we will be coming back to. All right. And now, since it's 2020, we're going to turn to U.S. politics. We just uh, are coming off the New Hampshire primary uh, and also... um, President Donald Trump decided to unveil one of his budget proposals. Uh, Anna, you've been looking at both these things. Let's start with the primary and what happened in New Hampshire. Um, Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete. 
Yes. So um, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders did win in New Hampshire, which was somewhat expected. However, he didn't win by very much. Yeah, just a, like just a hair. Exactly. Not, just not a four thousand votes or something. Yep. Exactly. Over the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. And what was also surprising was that um, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, also really kind of outperformed expectations. I think getting about twenty percent of the vote. And Joe Biden, you can say, really underperformed. Yeah, I mean, he just like basically said, I'm done with the state yes. and I'm going go to go to South Carolina. Carolina. <laughs> he left before the vote was <laughs> yes. out. Yes, Elizabeth Warren also um, suffered. Yes, yes, she did. And, and what a lot of people think is that um, a lot of the college educated women who were voting for or were potentially going to be voting for Warren switched to Klobuchar. Right. So what this is interesting in terms of what it says moving forward, because on the one hand, you can say, well, look, Bernie Sanders won. He and Buttigieg were essentially tied in the mess that was Iowa. Yeah. So he looks pretty good moving forward. And, and there's there's an argument to be made there. However, there's also an argument to be made that the moderates really did quite well. And as the moderates start falling away, as we go to more and more contests, you would think those votes, votes would coalesce around one So candidate. the moderates, it's, you're talking Klobuchar and Buttigieg, basically. Yes. And Warren is well. And Biden is, is the other moderate. So you're looking at a... 50% plus vote for the moderates there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, because it's, it really came down to three candidates, yeah. at least in this in this race, right? And and also Bernie just just wiped the floor in the last oh, New Hampshire primary yes, in, with, with uh, Hillary Clinton. In so. 2016, he did quite well. I think he got around 60% of the vote. Now, of course, we have more candidates this time, so, so that's a difference. However, you could also argue that he's been in the news since yeah, 2016, yeah. whereas these other candidates haven't. Yeah, I personally felt, I, I thought his, his, his win should have been by a much larger margin than it, yeah. than it But also, uh, unlike in Iowa, I think I read that um, turnout in New Hampshire was up on 2016. Yes. Yes, and because that was definitely a concern in the Democratic Party in regards to Iowa, that in order for the Democrats to beat Donald Trump in the general election, they're going to need a higher turnout. And yeah. so to have a little bit of a lower turnout in Iowa was a little scary mm. for them. So how do, how do we read this? And what does, what does this mean um, for us and our, our listeners and readers thinking about the economy, stock markets, whatever? And you, you have a, a, a self-confessed democratic socialist who wants to go after capitalism to some degree or other. Let's not overstate it. Um, seemingly in the lead, off admittedly, as I was saying last week, two small states that really probably how much influence they really have over much bigger, far more diverse states. Um, but wh- where does this leave us, what do you think? So, I, I mean, I'm sure I've probably said this before, that I imagine that as the campaign goes, when a candidate like Bernie Sanders is doing well, you might see some movement in the stock market. You might see some movement in healthcare yeah. um, equities. However, if you look over the last 50 years and you look at kind of correlation between candidates and what kind of happens long term in the market or to these businesses, there's essentially no correlation. Yeah. So I, I would argue that what is actually happening in the stock market in relation to the candidates probably not so important. However, I do think it is interesting to see how far the bar has moved. Because when we're talking about moderate candidates, we're talking about candidates who are putting forward proposals that would have been seen as incredibly progressive in right. 2016. Having a you know yeah. a public option. The, the for type healthcare. Of, for healthcare, yeah. for having the, you know, uh, minimum wage of $15 for everyone. The kind of proposals that Bernie Sanders was talking about in 2016 are now considered moderate. Right. I, that, to me, is a bigger deal. Yeah. Now, if you if you end up getting a Democrat in the White House, which is a big if, does that mean they'll be able to push these proposals through? 
absolutely no one knows. But I do think this does speak to how a large part of the Democratic electorate has shifted to the left. Right. And meanwhile, um, as Jen said, Donald Trump came out with his budget proposals this week for the next fiscal year. Um, again, they're not going to go anywhere. They can't get past the House. And, and but th- that, but that's that's not really the point we're looking at. It's, it, this is like almost his his um, his pitch for the 2020 election, right? Exactly. These presidential budgets are always fantasy budgets. And in an election year, they are especially a fantasy mm. budget. And it really is a political document that is aimed at his base, saying this is what I this is what you would be voting for. Mm. And it's it's a little interesting in that it's in some sense very old school Republican entitlement cuts, you know, cutting into the social safety net, spending more on defense, you know, that that is very much in line with what we would have expected from almost any Republican candidate. Of course, it would also include $2 billion for the wall between the U.S. and Mexico, Mm. which, of course, is a measure that probably will never go anywhere, but that's also somewhat unique to to, um, President Trump. To me, what was interesting in this beyond just the obvious of it's not going to go anywhere. Its assumptions for GDP growth are far too high. Yeah. And not going anywhere because the, the House has to vote on it. Which exactly. Which is controlled by Democrats right. right now. Okay. Right. And so what to me is a, you know, a little interesting was to look at how within, say, defense spending, how the money was actually being allocated. Because a lot more of the money was going towards research in things like quantum computing and artificial right. um intelligence. And, you know, that does speak to Trump and the kind of opposition to China and this fear that the U.S. is falling behind. But, but you know, that, that is a little different than what we've seen in the past. Yeah. Now, now having said that, there are some cuts that um, the, the budget also makes to science and other areas, which are not not ideal. But, you know, I, I do think this is one area where you can say, yeah, that there's there's it's probably good long term for the productive capacity of the economy to be spending in these areas. Yeah. Now, the other thing that the budget does talk about is a plan to reduce the deficit. Now, the deficit is going to be something the that... Cr- created by the, in large part <laughs> by the tax cuts yes. uh, of, of his first administration. Exactly. Everyone knows that tax cuts do not pay for themselves. And so unsurprisingly, the, the deficit is you know near trillion dollars. What's interesting is that when you you know listen to the campaign the rest of this year, you are going to hear very little talk about the budget deficit. Yeah. You're not going to hear much talk about the deficit because when rates are really low, a big deficit is much easier to service. So you know I would say it, it's going to be a really interesting year moving forward to see how all of these things change, how all of these policies change as we actually get a Democratic candidate. But it may be a while before we have one. All right. Well, that's probably the understatement of the year. Thank you, Anna. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my colleagues and co-hosts, Anthony and Anna, for joining the program. Hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast on The Exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.